All right. Thank you, Cody and Anna and Cade, for helping us to worship. And if you'll turn with me to Hebrews, we're going to look at uh, the end of chapter 4 there where we've been, Hebrews chapter number 4, and uh, we're going to resume in verse number 12. So uh, once you found your place, I hope you'll follow along in your Bible or um, on your device and engage with the scripture passage. It's inspired and inerrant is the word we use, which is to say that uh, God gave us his word and he's protected his word so that we could have an accurate way of understanding how he speaks to us. And so it's good to be together in God's house with his people in a place that he's prepared for you to hear from him. So let's think about him and uh, how he's sharing and speaking from his word. And uh, the Bible kind of brags on itself here in verse 12. It says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I thank you for the Bible. Thank you for your truth to us, and we pray that you'll use it by your spirit to speak to us. I pray for cleansing and forgiveness, Father, that you can uh, use me as a vessel to speak your truth, and I pray that you'll help us now as we listen and we commit ourselves to you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you get the overarching idea of uh, what Hebrews is about in this passage because it reminds us again to hold fast to our confession. Hold fast to your confession, it says. And the background for this group of believers is in the first century. They had come out of the practice of Judaism and came to understand that Jesus fulfilled all the things that it foreshadowed. And so there's pressure on these believers in the first century to go back, to turn away from their confession. Their confession, the confession that saves anyone, is Jesus is Lord. That's the confession that saves you and me, is that Jesus is Lord. And yet they faced pressure from family and their family system. They faced pressure in the society that they were a part of, the possibility of lost employment, the possibility of violent persecution from government because we understand in the first century uh, Christianity was an illicit religion. There were religions that could be practiced. They were pluralistic like we are. You know, we're in a pluralistic society where people could leave home and go worship in any expression of their faith without fear of persecution. That's part of what religious liberty means. But Christianity in the first century was a persecuted uh, faith. And so to commit to it did not mean that you could uh, freely express your faith. In fact, a lot of the persecution we know came from the established religion because uh, we know Paul's story, right? How Saul of Tarsus went to pursue Christians and to have them arrested, incarcerated, and sometimes put to death. And so there was violent persecution. It cost to be a follower of Christ in their time. And so people would often flake out. 
they would leave Christian community. They would go back and find a safer way to live because it was uh, not a safe way to live. You know, we think about that. That's not what we experience here, right? It is safe for you to uh, practice your faith. But still there is, uh, I think, pressure that people experience. It may come internally. It may come from the kind of cultural beliefs that are prevalent now where people think your faith is outmoded and outdated. Why do you still think the way you do about sexual morality? Why do you still hold to the things that you believe are true about the way the world works? And so people often just say, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not committed to that. I'm not going to keep naming Jesus and living that out. And so that's what they were up against too. So the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? It may just look different, but the Bible was written, and we're going to see in the passage that it is timeless and relevant. And it always is going to address what's important to human beings. And so when we, you know, we look at this passage, we can see that. I heard a song back in the 90s where the uh, songwriter said, It always amazed me that someone could come to the edge of the world and drop a stone down the edge and turn and return to the very same life. And I've always, that lyric sticks with me. The, there's an interview uh, by that artist, and he, he says, yeah, that's a very dangerous thing to think that we could gaze into eternity, that a person could gaze into eternity and see what's true and what's real, but then turn around and go back to the very same life that they knew before. And, and that's what the Scripture is pointing out to us, is that it's possible for people to have complete familiarity with all the biblical tenets of a faith that's centered into Christ, that people could could know that, could hear it, could have exposure to it, and then go, nah, no thanks. I'm just going to go do what I want with my life. And so God has an intended purpose for everybody, and it's the same for everybody. His, his purpose is that you receive eternal life as a gift that comes through his son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, was buried and raised from the dead, and ascended to heaven to be with God. God's purpose is that you receive eternal life as a gift, and then that you live as a worshiper and a witness to who he is, to bring him glory and to bring him honor. That, his purpose is the same for everybody. It's no different for anybody. His purpose first for you is that you receive eternal life and that you be regenerated and born into that life. And then, of course, it's more specific as we seek him through prayer and we understand what it means to follow after him. But a person could know that God has a a purpose for us and still go, no thanks, I'm going to live life my way. I'm going to do this thing the way I want to do it. And so we're warned away from that. And as we look at this passage, I think what we can see is that it outlines and frames for us what, from God's perspective, a life that's worthwhile looks like. What does it look like to have a life that God says, I put my stamp of approval on that life. That's worthwhile. That's the way that once you're born into this world and you go through elementary school and high school, and you're starting to try to put together the pieces, what does it mean? God says, this is what it means. This is what life looks like, according to me, the way it should be. This is a worthwhile 
life. So this passage un- unwraps that for us. And so the first truth we see from this passage is that a worthwhile life is changed by the Word of God. God is speaking. God has spoken. God the Word. That's the title given to Jesus in the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word. Well, that's trying to say something to us, isn't it? When Jesus is given that title, the Word, and it says in the beginning was the Word. He's always existed, but then he became flesh. It's trying to say God is speaking. We don't have to wonder. Is there a message from God? Yes, God is speaking. And so if our life is to be changed, it's because there's an encounter with his word. We hear. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So we understand that God is speaking and saying specific things to us. And so one thing we see in this passage is that the word of God is living. It's living. You think about that. I mentioned um, Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And he does a good job of saying that, you know, when we think about the Bible, my Bible, this one Frankie gave me before we got married, so I've had it for thirty, almost 36 years, and this one is falling apart, and I'm debating whether to buy a new preaching Bible or to have this one recovered. I'm investigating now what I want to do. But the thing I know about this book is that it is living. It's living. I think about one of the worst, I don't know, for, for me, I was part of a, um, ch- we went to church in Augusta at Sherwood Baptist Church. That was the uh, congregation that Frankie and I were baptized and made a, a commitment to Christ together and where we were discipled. And um, that church owned property out in McBean, Georgia. Anybody know where McBean is? Large metropolitan area outside of Augusta. Actually, it was the boonies. But um, it was close enough to Fort Gordon, and it it began to grow. And our church started a congregation there. And Frankie and I, guess what? We lived in McBean. That's where we lived. It was the, We lived in a mobile home on an acre of land in the middle of nowhere when we were little babies uh, in married life with little kids of our own. And so it made sense to us to go be part of this congregation that was in our neighborhood where we lived. And so we did. And they uh, put together like modular buildings. And I taught a large Sunday school class uh, there. I was a baby Christian myself. And the our retired pastor was the the uh, missions pastor out there. And that congregation really took off and grew. And they approached me at a point. They knew that I was licensed to preach. And I had preached for my pastor sometimes when he was out. And they asked me to consider becoming their pastor. And um, Frankie was not on board at that point. I worked for uh, as a maintenance mechanic at Savannah Riverside and made decent money and you know, it's a big deal to think, am I going to leave this and do that? And they wanted me to do it full time. And um, that percolated for about a year. That they, they at first offered us the opportunity to consider becoming the pastor there. And then they said, well, after advice, we think we need to do a little more, you know, uh, thinking and praying through this and searching. And they came back to us about, I don't, I can't remember how long later, months and months later. 
and said, no, we think this is still the right thing. And um, so at that point, um, I think Frankie, a little grudgingly, was like, okay. <laughs> and, and they voted not to call me as their pastor after all that stuff. And it was like a, a mystery, you know, to us and, and heartbreaking, honestly. And uh, I, I remember going to my parents for lunch because they lived in Augusta and my parents were both living at the time. And I'm um, going home that afternoon and sitting by the side of my bed and just being broken, you know, really weeping and, and thinking, what is going on here? And uh, I, you know how sometimes you open the Bible up and it's like, okay, man, uh, I don't think this is the way God wants us to read the Bible all the time. But in that moment, I opened the Bible up to a passage of Scripture where God says, basically, I have you in my right hand. I'm holding on to you. It was in Isaiah and um, it, it was, for me, an evidence of the fact that the Bible is living. It's relevant. It's like, what, right when I needed God to speak to me, I opened the Bible to a passage that spoke exactly where my heart would, was and, and encouraged me and strengthened me. And then about a year later, after you know I was enrolled in doing distance education and in God's timing he opened up an opportunity for me to pastor in a bivocational capacity Union Baptist Church in Sylvania Georgia and it was perfect for us because I still had insurance and my wife could gradually work up to the idea that more and more we could trust that God would provide for us and eventually it became clear in both of our hearts and uh, that okay, yeah, we can we can uh, trust God. He's going to take care of us in vocational ministry, and He has ever since then. But that that story comes back to me as I think about the fact that the Bible is living. It's living. It speaks to your current experience and your needs. Uh, Josh McDowell, who I mentioned, wrote that book. Uh, Evidence that demands a verdict says scriptures. Well, this is what I'd say. Scripture is difficult for the same reason that it's amazing. It is a difficult book because it contains a variety of genre. When you read the Bible, what are you reading? Well, sometimes you're reading history, right? And that, like First uh, and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, that's history. Sometimes you're reading prophecy and apocalyptic. Where else do you find a category of literature known? as apocalyptic literature. You know, very seldom anywhere. Like, Revelation is apocalyptic. It speaks to things that are yet to come, and it's prophesying and showing us in shadows sometimes and difficult metaphors and uh, stories what's going to happen in the future. It's poetry too, right? When you read the book of, like, Ecclesiastes, it's not exactly poetry, but sometimes it is. That you remember the song by the birds to uh, to everything. There's a time and a season. They turned that uh, beautiful poetry from Ecclesiastes into a, a song that you could sing the lyrics to. Now, the Bible is poetry. The Bible speaks to us in uh, history. It creates its own categories of uh, of literature, like epistles. The epistles are instructive, and uh, they're letters that have, have been given and held up over time. And it's interesting, the Bible was written on three continents in dozens and dozens of countries in the Middle East and in Asia and Europe. And the Bible was written over a period of 
a couple of thousand years by kings and fishermen. Think about the people that were used to put put down the, you know, sometimes people that didn't even want to be part of the story. Mostly that's how it shapes up. They're, God speaks to them and says, I'm going to use you. And they're, they're always like, are you sure you have the right person? I don't think I'm up to this. A lot of times people like Moses, I can't speak. And, and yet they end up being involved in this recording of the overarching, again, story that God is telling, which is the redemption of men. It was written in three languages, Greek, Hebrew, and a little bit of Aramaic, the language that Jesus spoke. And it's a historical record of God's activity with people. So it uses these narratives, which, like we talked about last week, when uh, archaeology always confirms the history that the Bible uh, shares in its telling us about the story of God and his interaction with people. But what else do you learn in the Bible? You learn how to pray, right? I don't know how to pray. Jesus' disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray like John taught his disciples to pray. And Jesus taught them. And then now, over and over again, people uh, use the model prayer that Jesus gave us. It teaches us to pray. It teaches us about salvation. It provides comfort and insight about life. And so, When the Bible says it is uh, living, this is what it's saying. It is living, and it shows us accurately the answer to the human dilemma. It provides a cure for the dilemma that all humans face everywhere and always will. So the, the Word of God is living, but then the second thing that it says here is that the Word of God is effective. It says powerful in some translations. The word is the word we get the uh, word energy from in English. It's effective. In other words, when God speaks, his word does what he intends for it to do. It convicts and challenges and helps. When we think about the imagery here, what do you think of when you think of a sword? If somebody shows up in this room with a sword, okay, how do you feel about that? A little threatened probably, right? And you're like, put that thing up. You know, What are you doing in here with that? Well, that's the image that the Bible uses about what the, the Bible is. It's a sword. It's, it uh, is violently sort of entering into your world. And so a sword can pierce flesh. But the, the Bible, it says, gets down to the inner person. It uses the idea of of, uh, joints and marrow, soul and spirit. It talks about the division. But it's talking about how it discerns what's inside of you, your inner life, the underlying part of you. And so our unseen but real self is where the Bible goes to do its work. The Bible, when it describes itself in Ephesians, says the sword of the spirit is the word of God. The sword of the Spirit, the work that the Spirit does, sometimes what it's doing is excising malignancy when it cuts, when it does its work. And my dad uh, had cancer one time, and they were talking about a procedure to excise, to get that cancer off of his forehead. 
And sometimes that's what this sharp two-edged sword is doing. It's God's intent is to take something malignant in you out. So why does he do that? Why would he penetrate and cut and get inside of you? Because he wants to heal you and help you to be healthy, right? Me too. So his word functions that way in our life. It gets inside to where our need is. In Jesus, we said that the word of God was brought to us. In the beginning was the word, and he came to us. And Jesus gave a a personality and a vocabulary to God that if we really care, we can understand. That's why we need to know about Jesus, is because he came to give God a personality. I mean, God had that personality, but it's really visible when Jesus comes. We really see what God is like. When we read the gospel narratives and we see how Jesus is with people, I'm glad that God's like that. I'm glad God is like Jesus. And the Bible says he comes to show us what what God, who God is and what he's like. And if we want to know what God is like, we can because Jesus demonstrates that in in his words and in his interaction with people. And so the word of God is living and it's effective. It's going to do what God intends for it to do. And because it is a violent in kind of encounter, confrontation, when it's a sword that have that imagery, it interrupts us and it redirects us. So it's got that sort of action in a person's life. That's what God intends for it to be because it's a sword. It's intended to move you along sometimes too. I think about Saul. I read something recently I couldn't remember um, what exactly what it said, but the the sense of it was that God is like a gentleman and he doesn't bust into your life and uh, you know, but I thought, really, I don't know that that's always true because I think of Saul of Tarsus. God sort of busted into his life, didn't he? He's on the road to Damascus to uh, to arrest Christians and to persecute them, and all of a sudden he's struck blind and he can't lead himself anymore his world changed just that quickly and he hears a voice and that voice says Saul why are you persecuting me and he says who are you Lord and and basically has this encounter where his life is interrupted violently where he had his own set of ideas about what he was going to do. But all of a sudden, his life gets interrupted, and he has a whole new idea and a whole new agenda and a whole new way of thinking about his purpose. His purpose was to oppose the work of uh, Christ, but then he's interrupted, and the word that comes to him says, I'm Jesus who you're persecuting. That's who I am. And he says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads is the way that the, that, but we, that's lost to us because we don't have any goads. We don't know what that is. <clears throat> but for them, a goad was like a sharp, pointed object that was used to motivate an animal, an ox. So the ox didn't want it to go where you wanted it to. You hit it with a sharp object so it would go where, where you wanted it to. And that's what Jesus says to Paul he says, basically, what I'm doing to you is like hitting you with a goad. I'm goading you. And he says, it's hard for you to resist what I'm doing. And so through his word, sometimes that's what God is showing up and saying something to us that we may want to resist, but 
it, from God's perspective, it's irresistible. And so that's what Paul's experience was, is that he, God shows up in his life, and the sword for him, the way God is speaking, interrupted and redirected him. He stopped doing what he was doing. He started doing something else. And that really is, when we think about what's the Word of God trying to do, sometimes that's what it's trying to do. It's trying to stop you from going one direction and, and to urge us into another direction. So the Word of God can only help us if we're under it. So we need to read the Word of God, meditate on it. That means my old, one of my former pastors used to say, Meditate means like a, ch- a cow chewing cud. He chews it, chews it, chews it, chews it. That's what meditation is. It's like thinking about it, bringing it back up, chewing on it, internalizing the word. We need to hear it taught and preached. That's why you come to public worship is to hear the word preached. It's a part of it and to worship, offer our own worship and our gifts and to involve ourselves in the community of faith that God's calling us to be in. We apply it. So that it does no good to know the Bible if we don't apply it to the situations that we're in. So application is part of God's purpose in knowing the Bible. It's so that I can take it and be a wise person. There are lots of people with Bible knowledge who aren't wise people. They know what the Bible says, but there's a difference between knowing what it says and, and putting it into application in our, in our lives. So we apply the Bible, and it never ceases to speak. It will always speak. The Bible has one interpretation and many applications. You know, sometimes people will say, you can make the Bible mean anything you want wrong. If I write you a letter, I don't want you to take it and make it mean anything you want. I had an intended idea in mind when I wrote it. And so did the author of Scripture. The, in the book of Second Peter, it says that there is no private interpretation of Scripture. All Scripture is given, uh, the Apostle Paul says, by inspiration of God. The word is God, the Scripture is God-breathed. God-breathed. He exhaled His Word and gave it to us. And he didn't, he didn't intend to be misunderstood. So there's only, sometimes we have to wrestle with what the Bible is saying. And like in my study, I use a lot of translations and compare them and try to use tools from people way smarter than me to, to make sure that I'm trying to give the accurate idea of what this text is saying. But it only has one intended meaning, but it will have many applications. There's one interpretation, many applications. So often it ministers to us when we're weepy and broken, like I was describing before. The Bible may come to us to correct us. It may come to us to comfort us. It always comes to us to change us, to make us different. That's the intent that the Word of God has is to produce life change. God wants to change our lives so that they're aligned with his vision and purpose for us. So that's what we see about the how is God, what's a worthwhile life look like? It's changed by God's word. But secondly, a worthwhile life is challenged by the judgment of God. It's changed by the word of God. It's challenged by the judgment of God.
we lose sight of that reality that the creator is also judge. The only righteous judge is the one who created us and told us what life means. And so in the passage here in uh, the 13th verse, it says, There's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So every thought is accessible to God. Every thought and every action and every attitude, everything is open, the Bible says, to the eyes of the one to whom we must give an account. There's a Latin phrase, caram dio. I first read this in Chuck Colson. And And the reformers would talk about the fact that everything that we do is before the eyes of God. In the sight of God. Well, unbelief really clouds that for us a lot of times. And we forget that everything that we do is before the eyes of God. God's not limited like human beings. He, we use those words, the omni words, right? He's omniscient. He sees everything. There's not a wall thick enough that God can't see through it or a roof or a ceiling we can get under where God doesn't know what's going on because he's omniscient. He sees everything and he's omnipresent. He's everywhere, fills the world. And so we think about the idea of God as judge. The scripture says that whatever we're doing, wherever we're doing it, it's before the eyes and in the sight of God. Therefore, the worthy goal of every human being ought to be to honor God. Right? That's what we were created to do, is to honor the Lord all the time because everything that we do is always before the eyes of God. And so the Bible says, if you want a worthwhile life, if you want to live a life that's worthwhile in me, then I'll keep in mind that whatever I'm doing is done before the eyes of God. He sees and he knows what we've done. And one of the repeated themes in Hebrews is that the people uh, disobeyed. We, we keep seeing that how at, in the wilderness experience. But even before that, I was reading uh, this past week in the Psalms. Even in Egypt, the Bible says they were already idolaters. The Psalms say that the people in Egypt were already trying to worship the gods of Egypt. So idolatry was in them before they ever got out into the wilderness. It didn't appear in the wilderness. It was already part of their experience. And the struggle that we're always going to have is to decide whether we're going to obey God or we're going to obey our own impulse or we're going to obey the impulses of the world. It's always pretty basic. And so the, the, their struggle is in obedience or disobedience. And disobedience, I think, is always, when we look at what's going on there, it's unbelief. It's a, there's some sort of, it may be subtle or it may not be subtle, but unbelief. We don't really believe that everything that we do is before the eyes of God or that God's ultimate or that God is judge. Unbelief. And so that was what was going on with them and what the, why the Bible says, today if you will hear my voice, what did it say? Do you remember? Do not harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. Because the more we persist in our unbelief and we don't respond to what God is saying to us, he says, this is the danger that you run. You're uh, in danger of unbelief characterizing your life. And the scripture says in 
1 Timothy 4, 2, that sometimes people's conscience will be seared with a hot iron is the way it, it puts the idea that persistent in disobedience and unbelief creates a, a convoluted sort of internal situation where we become unwilling to respond to God. We, we stop responding. And so it must be for us a compelling reality that everything we do is open to the eyes of God. So every person or every thought is accessible to him. And the second thing it says is every person is accountable to him. Every thought's accessible to him. Every person is accountable to him. So when it says the last part of this verse says uh, everything's open, exposed to the eyes of to the one to whom we must give an account. And it's a very, <clears throat> excuse me, interesting phrase because it says, the, uh, I like how one translation in, uh, puts this, everything is naked and exposed to the eyes of the one to whom we must give a word of explanation. A word of explanation. Uh, it's, that's the Greek, it's the word logos. That it's the same word for word. <laughs> and it's saying our lives are going to play out in a particular way so that we don't think about And God is not, we think like, oh, there have been billions and billions of people in the history of the world. We'll continue to be billions and billions of people perhaps. How does God have time to sit down and converse with everybody? Because there's this thing called eternity where uh, we encounter God and I... Whether this is the image, sometimes people say, well, that's just a metaphor. Well, if it's a metaphor, it's a pretty disturbing one. The idea that I'm going to sit down and converse with God, and he's going to say, what about that messed up thing? Let's talk about that. And the Bible says the, everything that we do is exposed and known, and because of this naked exposure... There's uneasiness. And here's what you conclude as you go through this passage. You need an advocate to deal with that. You need someone to step up and speak for you. Because there's no denying what our lives are. There's no denying that at times, you know, where we've been is not where we want to be. We need an advocate. Don't you wish we had an advocate? Wouldn't that be good? God knows everything that can be done. How do we cover over it? How do we deal with that? If all that's true is that you're messed up and God knows it, that's not good news. But there is good news, and that's what we see in the remainder of this passage, is that the one who knows everything stepped up for you and took all of our stuff. And was punished in our place. Isn't that good news? That's better news than just knowing that God knows everything about me. The, the better news is that somebody stepped up for me. And somebody said, I will take your punishment. All this stuff is true about you, but I've stepped up for you. So we think about a worthwhile life. It's uh, challenged by the word of God. It's, we're confronted by this judge and then we're comforted, thirdly. A worthwhile wife is one who has, your life has found comfort in the Son of God. 
the uh, rest of this passage talks about Jesus' high priest. And so we've said they were in this system. The temple worship had high, a high priest. Every year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, this high priest would go into the, he would pass through the holy place into the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest could go in there and only once a year. And that high priest offered on the, where the Ark of the Covenant was, at, on the mercy seat, there were cherubim, there was a place in, on top of that ark with the broken law underneath where the high priest went in and he sprinkled blood from an, a sacrifice. And that blood was for the remission of sins. And the high priest went in there once a year, over and over and over again. Because it was never fulfilled, it was always in process until Jesus came, the high priest, prefigured and foreshadowed. And everything that had been happening in that history up until then, and so what, what we see in this passage about Jesus is, for one, he inspires our confidence, the scripture says, that he is the, the high priest who uh, we have, a high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, and it says, then let us hold our confession. So Jesus, we see in this passage, is in position to help. He's in possession, position to help because he passed through the heavens, having... He, Jesus didn't offer sacrifices. He didn't go find an animal to kill, a lamb without blemish. He didn't, he didn't go find an animal. He, he didn't make an offering. He became the offering. The high priest became the offering. And he entered through that holy place into the holy of holies. Not the one made by hands, the writer will show us in Hebrews, but the one in heaven that was, the, the stuff on earth was a copy of. He went there and he sprinkled his blood, his shed blood. The high priest became the offering. And so he's in a position to help. The other high priests and the system they were a part of were a shadow and a dim preview of Christ. But Christ was the final word. He came to bring to us this full salvation once and for all. Not over and over again, but once and for all. That's what Jesus did. He's in a position to help and Jesus is willing to help. He's willing to help. That's good news too. He's in a position to help. He's willing to help. So I, I had a supervisor once in... Uh, I work, when I worked for Savannah Riverside, they put me on a shift. I was a pastor of a church, and they put me on a shift that had uh, five rotations. So two of those rotations were I was coming off of or going on to a 12-and-a-half-hour shift. And that didn't work very well when you're a pastor in church because either one of thing, uh, two things was true. I was either at work when I should have been preaching or I came home and slept for three hours and preached bleary-eyed on one of those shifts. So I went to the supervisor that we worked under and I said, you know, here's my reality. I'm a bivocational pastor. This shift that I've been put on causes me not to be able to serve my congregation. And he was not sympathetic. 
And he didn't say, well, let's see if we can't get you a day job. Within a few months, a day job became open. But that guy was in a position to help, but he wasn't willing to help. See, Jesus is in a position to help, and he's willing to help. So that's why we, you know, when we read the Bible, we're like, man, that is good news. For if, It says we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in every uh, way, in every point, he was tempted as we are. So he's in a position to help, and he's willing to help. So he, the Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And that's when we think about it, a lot of times what we want to do is we want to reform ourselves. We, I, this is how I thought. I thought, well, let me see what how I can let, do less bad things. Let me see how I can become more responsible. Let me see how I can, you know, take more responsibility and do. And, and I was like doing this. I was going to do a job on myself. And what I found out was I needed help. I needed some help outside of myself. And God, here's the good news is that God demonstrated his love toward me and that while I was a sinner, Christ died for me. He didn't wait till my, I, I got my project going on myself and started doing better. He had already done what needed to be done. So he's in a position to help and he's willing to help. So Jesus inspires our confidence, but also Jesus entered our chaos. He entered our chaos. Verse 15 talks about the way that he, it says he uh, has sympathize with us in our weakness how did he do that he was tempted in every way as we were even more so we think about celebrities sometimes and how they make a big mess of our of their lives and like like a tiger woods you know at the top of his game you remember how his life fell apart and we think how would he do that because he was positioned for that to happen in a way that you are not and i am not perhaps but we think about how, you know, people that can be in a situation for things. Well, we think about Jesus himself was offered and tempted in ways that, you know, we think about, well, he was God. Was it really temptation? Well, he was also human. And the Bible says that, that, that when Jesus had fasted for 40 days, he went into the wilderness and was tempted. And that Satan comes up and he offers him He's, he's like, I'll give you the, all the kingdoms of the earth. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. And Jesus says, away with you. Yeah, yeah, but he, how did he fight temptation? Uh, Rich Mullins has a song called, quoting Deuteronomy to the devil. That's how he did it. He kept quoting Deuteronomy to the devil. It is written, man won't live by uh, bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's how he defeated Satan is through uh, the word of God. And so, but he enters into our chaos and he's tempted and his temptation was real. The Bible says he kept, Satan kept offering him, go up onto the pinnacle of the temple and throw yourself down. It's written that I'll give my angels charge over you. They'll catch you and rescue you. But Jesus says it's also written that you won't put the Lord your God to the test. So over and over again, we see that the temptation that he was going through was was genuine and real, and he defeated it through fasting and through prayer. What did Jesus do at the end of his life when he, he prayed to his father in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he labors in prayer, and he says, if it's possible, let this cup be taken away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. 
he prayed and accepted the will of God and he died in our place and took our salvation upon himself. And we have to remember that Jesus was God, but Jesus was human. He became a man. When the word of God talks about Jesus being begotten, that's, it's always, it's not referring to him becoming real in that moment. It's saying God, timeless, eternal, came to earth and became a human being. He didn't begin to exist. He began to exist as Jesus on earth, born into that family that he was born into. So Jesus came here in his humanity, and the book of Hebrews later on will say that he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. That's not an easy thing to think about, but that's what it says. He learned obedience. In other words, that experience only happened after he became a man. That's when he learned it, when he became human, and he lived a, a human life. And he did that so that he could die a sacrificial death, a substitutionary death, a death that took your place and my place. And so he's the only person. C.S. Lewis says Jesus is the only uh, realist. He's the only, we think of like people that uh, go through temptation. He says, no, Jesus is the one who was the most real when it came to temptation. Because he resisted and, and other people don't resist. We ultimately cave in. He says, but he resisted. So he's the only actual realist. But how does he help? Well, he offers an example to be followed. We can see through his, his life that he offered an example to be followed. But he off, and the scripture says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, these things are right to you so that you may not sin. So the Bible says we can persist through temptation if we see what Christ did. We depend on God's word. We fast. We uh, hold on to God and we pray. So that's how he helps us as followers, but also he offers us forgiveness in our failure. 1 John 2 continues, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So we're not in despair. He offers us help so that we might resist sin. But if we fail, which the Bible anticipates that we sometimes will, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So Jesus entered our chaos, and then also the scripture shows us that Jesus understands our condition. In the last part of this passage, let us, this is our invitation because of who Jesus is and what he did. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find help in uh, grace in our time of need. That we may uh, obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. So, I always, Psalm 103 is probably my favorite psalm. It says, in part, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. You know, parents know what it's like to uh, love our kids with with their faults, with their flaws. And you know, if we if we keep in mind, I, you know, I also am flawed. I also am imperfect. But as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion, mercy on those who fear Him. That's God's heart toward us. And, I, and it says, it goes on and it says that he, he knows our frame. He's mindful that we are dust. 
So when God thinks about you, this is how he perceives your situation. He, he says he considers our frame. In other words, he knows how you're made. And it says he knows that we're dust. Dust. That's where we came from. That's where you're going unless Christ interrupts human history. But God knows that we're flawed and frail and that we fail. And this is why I'm always reminded and thankful that my salvation is not dependent on my performance. Thank God. And the Bible says about this passage and the idea that he understands our condition, that he invites us to speak freely. It's so interesting when you study this passage when it says come boldly. That word boldly is the idea of freedom of speech. You have the right as a son and daughter of God to talk through your stuff with God. He already knows. We already saw that he knows our thoughts. Sometimes we're like, well, I don't want to talk to God about how I really feel. Well, he already knows it. We might as well. And the Bible says for us to come boldly, and and in that is the idea that you have the freedom to approach God. Of course, not blasphemously. But, you know, we have the the right, because we're his children, to come to his throne with our stuff. And he's not put off by our honesty. Honesty is just uh, acknowledging what God already knows. So Jesus invites us to speak freely. And Jesus also, in this passage, even though he's a king, grants us access to his throne. He's a king. Who else in the, what other powerful person? You may or may not get an answer if you write to a powerful person in this country, even a politician. But this is the most powerful person, and the Bible says he granted access to his throne to you. That we have the privilege of taking our, you know, stuff to the throne room of God. And what's going to happen once we do that? Well, the Bible says we'll find compassionate help. Though he's perfect, he's patient with our faults. Jesus is patient with our our faults. Sometimes we can be hard on ourselves. I don't know how other people are, but boy, there's nobody in the world more uh, that's harder on me than I am on me. Regret can be a turning point in our life. That's what God intends, but sometimes we turn regret into self-loathing. I'm sure nobody has that problem. It's only kind of the most common human stuff. What's the answer instead of that? The Bible says to come to the throne of grace, that we can find mercy and help in our time of need. So regret can be a turning point, but self-loathing is detrimental and self-defeating God's love's not contingent on our performance you need to tattoo that on your brain God's love is not contingent on your performance because he already loved you before you had any performance that's it's nonsense to say I've got to you know work my way and earn my way into God's good favor that's just a lie from the pit of hell God answers prayer Jesus said people ought always to pray and never give up in uh, Luke's gospel in chapter 18, verse 1. 
People should always pray and never give up. Even if we don't find immediate help, we can be comforted by the reality that God's help will come and it will be strategic and timely. That's what that uh, phrase means here in this passage when it says that we find uh, mercy and grace in our time of need. It says it's strategic and timely. I prayed prayers that have taken literally decades to begin to see answers for. Prayers that I prayed over and over. It just sounded like I was, you know, after a while just praying to myself. And yet, over time, when it, it feels then right on time, God is answering and working. And he's working even before that. Just stuff we can't see. Eugene Peterson said, Everyone is on the verge of crying out, My Lord and my God. But the cry is drowned out by doubt or defiance, muffled by the dull ache of our routines, masked by the cozy accommodation with mediocrity, he says. Everybody's on the verge of crying out, My my Lord and my God, he says. But all these other things. That's why when we think about the fact that God says there is a worthwhile life, you're involved. You're involved. You have to respond and and not let all the other things crowd him out. God's purpose for every person is exactly identical, uh, identical to begin with. It's that we receive eternal life as a gift through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died in our place, was buried and raised from the dead and ascended into heaven, and he's now your advocate who pleads his blood for our cause and our sins and our shortcomings. And his purpose is that we worship him and be witnesses to him. It's not that we gaze into eternity and drop a stone down the side and turn and return to the very same life. That's not his purpose, and that's the danger that this passage warns us away from. And I'll repeat what I've said before. That requires a a very limited spiritual imagination for us to go, no, I'll just stick with this. It's messed up, but I'll stick with that. No, there's better and and more. And and we have, I, I debate whether to say we have an immortal soul or we are an immortal soul. I think both are true. We have an immortal soul. And we are a being that's going to live forever. And God wants us to live with him. And he's preparing us for that life now. And Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And he says, where I'm going, you know, and the way you know. And we remember that Thomas spoke up and said, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? But Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So he's our way. And we have to respond to Jesus himself. And why wouldn't we? When we think about who he is, this great high priest who's come to us to identify with us and to rescue us and redirect us and to give us the kind of life that we were created to experience. I want to pray for us. We're going to have a time of commitment here at the end of our service, and I'll encourage you if you need to respond in some way, perhaps in prayer, you'd like me to pray with you, I'm, uh, I'm happy to do that. I'm going to pop a breath mint in my mouth, and uh, I will pray with you if you want to come forward for prayer, if there's a need that you have to respond to the gospel, 
to the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done for you, then we're inviting you to do that during this time. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, thank you so much for scripture. Thank you for the truth of who you are and what you've done on our behalf. And I pray for our help through you today, God, that we would experience your comfort in your life. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.